0: Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Lisa Hajar about her new book, The War in Court, about Guantanamo and the legal campaign to try and end American torture. Um, then we have an extended conversation with Yazid Saig about uh, the Egyptian economy, the role of the military, and the prospects for its new deal with the IMF. Thank you so much for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's book segment, we're joined by Lisa Hajar. She's the chair of the sociology department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's also the, the co-chair of the editorial committee of Middle East Report, co-editor of Jadalia, and author of the new book, The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture.
1: Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
0: So this is a this is a riveting narrative of really what has to be one of the most uh, depressing and shocking moments in American history. And um, it was a real pleasure to read. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this topic and um, what made you decide to write in this style?
1: Well, I was, you know. Prior to 9-11, I was already uh, well-schooled in torture because my, uh, which is a central theme, uh, because my PhD dissertation and my first book was on the Israeli military court system in the West Bank and Gaza. And so when I first got to Israel and Palestine uh, at the beginning of the 1990s to start doing my field work, one of the things I learned very quickly, I mean, I originally thought I was going to be doing a study of conflicting nationalities nationalisms in the military court. But what I learned was that torture was absolutely central to Israel's larger strategies of control over Palestinians in the West Bank uh, and Gaza. And that and that torture was actually central to the um, military court. So that was, you know, sort of got me really thinking about torture. But it also really, um, the study and and the process of doing research really made me appreciate the role that lawyers play in the in the context of conflicts. Because when um, conflicts have legal dimensions, which they often do when, a gov- when governments you know, fancy themselves to be rule of law states, lawyers, both government lawyers and lawyers who resist government policies and defend um, people who are you know, enemies of the government, uh, really play a role that nobody else can play. Because you know, the legal terrain is part of the, the terrain of conflict. And so that was something that was really, um, you know, I mean, I was fascinated by all these things, you know, working on um, Israel and Palestine. And then when 9-11 happened, you know, immediately, because I'd been thinking about torture for a decade nonstop prior to September 11th, 2001, um, from the earliest days, listening to things that Bush administration officials were saying, and particularly... Things that Dick Cheney, Vice President Dick Cheney was saying in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 made me anticipate that the U.S. government was going to adopt a policy of torture. Because they were saying things that were very similar to the Israeli line about interrogation. Um, And so that was really what sort of primed me and and had me looking, looking until, you know, when at first there was nothing to see. But so um, once, you know, as things unfolded, you know, and it became, um, you know, the torture uh, when Guantanamo was established in January uh, um, 2002, you know, the Bush administration held everyone there incommunicado and everything about them, uh, the detainees, was classified. And so there was really no information coming out initially about how. Uh, what what u.s interrogation policy was i mean and, and we didn't you know the public wasn't even aware at the early on in the war on terror that the cia was running its own separate track of what they called rendition detention and interrogation and so there was a lot of um secrecy surrounding the treatment of detainees and then a lot of like, you know, propaganda coming out from officials, you know, saying everyone in U.S. custody is, you know, a terrorist and our interrogation tactics are working fabulously to produce actionable intelligence. So all of that, that is a kind of secret going on, but the real break and where I really begin the story of my book, um, The War in Court, is when a couple of lawyers, you know, led by Mike, the late, great Michael Ratner, who was mm-hmm. president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, you know, at the very beginning in December and early January of 2002, they decided to challenge the President George W. Bush's authority to secretly detain people at Guantanamo. And Ratner had had experience with Guantanamo because he'd actually um, fought the administrations of the George H.W. Bush and Clinton over the use of Guantanamo to detain Haitian refugees and asylum seekers. So he kind of was, when, when Guantanamo was selected and the first detainees started being transferred there in January, he, you know, wanted to challenge the president's authority.
0: So before we get to the courts, which is really, you know, the that's the centerpiece of the book uh, is the way all of these uh, lawyers and, uh, you know, and and people try and bring this thing to, to light. Let's talk a little bit more about. What we now know about what was going on in terms of expanded interrogation, the black sites, rendition, because it was really quite shocking in many ways, the the secrecy that you're talking about, right? The, yeah. That all this was happening and the ability to keep it all classified right up until, well, anyway, you can tell the story better than me, but tell us a little bit about what
1: we now know. Okay. So, I mean, I think that one of the most important things, and this will be particularly relevant to political scientists, is that, you know, Vice President Dick Cheney um, and his legal counsel, David Addington, and a small group of right-wing lawyers from the White House, Pentagon, and Justice Department really banded together, and they took control of government, you know, the national security policy. And what this really, you know... They were motivated by um, something that's a popular concept in right-wing legal circles, which is called the unitary executive thesis. So Cheney and these lawyers who called themselves the War Council, they believed that the president has the authority to act without oversight or supervision that neither Congress nor courts can fetter him. And they also believe that the president has the power to obey or disregard any laws that he chose. And so early on, before there were even anybody in US custody, in the fall of 2001, these lawyers started reinterpreting US um, laws and treaty um, obligations in order to justify what they wanted to do or what they believed on the basis of nothing was necessary. The idea that the only way you could get intelligence out of terrorists is to brutalize, you know, and torture them, although they didn't call it torture. And so the whole legal framework was set for this. I mean, Guantanamo was created for that pur- purpose, you know, as a place where people could be held incommunicado. The
0: military- And the and military the US government jurisdiction outside the law
1: that was what the, the war council believed right. at the time right. and also that the military commissions that were established by a presidential decree on November 13 2001 were also you know this you know new form of, of a tribunal to try people that the government chose to prosecute was also built for torture it was basically you know the establishing order for the military commissions was that prosecutors would have the prerogative to use hearsay coerced state You know, there would be no um, guarantee of confidentiality between defense lawyers and uh, their clients. So the whole thing was really built to achieve objectives that people had from the very beginning, which was the these terrorists are unlike any other enemies. We need to treat them in you know brutal, uh, you know brutal ways in order to get intelligence out of them. So it was it was like a myth upon a lie upon a you know mm-hmm. like a you know nonsense. It was just ridiculous. Um, and so you know, but then when the um, the first uh, detainees that the government chose to prosecute they, they picked about I think five or six in 2003 and the government you know the Pentagon Donald Rumsfeld being you know Secretary of defense back then they believed you know in, in a way actually paradoxically similar to what I believed at the time which is that us soldiers will just blindly obey their orders no matter what you know what they're asked to do and so when the first judge advocates general or jags, Um, were assigned to be defense lawyers, they they were ordered to plead their clients guilty because the government wanted to have a quick outcome of these um, first cases in order to prove to critics that the military commissions were an effective tool in the war on terror. And really, one of the, it was an absolutely consequential miscalculation because these five jags are lawyers, and they prioritize their ethics as lawyers, and they're soldiers, and they were absolutely resentful of the attempts to use the military for political purposes. And so these five jags like started fighting the Pentagon, and they also teamed up with various civilian lawyers, including the lawyers at the Center for Constitutional Rights to really begin, you know, fighting against the unlawful dimensions of the government's prisoner policies, you know, at Guantanamo, military commissions, um, and elsewhere. And this was really the beginning of something that I think was, you know, unprecedented, at least in a very long time in U.S. history, was a military-civilian alliance in defense of the rule of law. And that becomes like one Mm -hmm. of the themes that I really track and trace throughout the book.
0: Now there's a couple of different areas where this plays out. One of them, as you said, is about the military tribunals and uh, the form in and the the venue and the and the rules by which the prisoners will be tried. And the other is over the question of habeas and whether basic rights extend to these detainees.
1: Right. So those are absolutely like the two of the of the kind of. Battle like topical battles and battlegrounds. So just let's think about habeas first. So you're just in case anybody who's listening doesn't know, habeas corpus literally means show us the body. And it's but it's it, it comes from the medieval era, you know, in a, the idea that the, the sovereign cannot secretly detain people. But in the US legal system, habeas that was not the function that habeas served. I mean, habeas corpus was basically a way, for the most part, in which people who'd been Convicted, especially sentenced to death by trials in state courts, could challenge the legality of their conviction in federal courts. That was what habeas was used. But when Bush basically brought back the medieval purpose of habeas, which is like secret detention, Mm -hmm. you know, when Michael Ratner and a small group of lawyers. Who you know submitted the first challenge to Bush's um, prerogative to secretly detain people at Guantanamo? That that case was called Rasul v. Bush. They filed it in February of 2002. Unsurprisingly, it lost in the lower court. On appeal, it lost in the D.C. District Court, and then they appealed it to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, and so it just says something about you know the role of courts. You know, as, as several things I would just point out. One courts were being asked to consider issues that had never been considered before, because the U.S. government had never before instituted a policy to secretly detain and, as we would learn later, torture people. So the courts did not really rise to the occasion, uh, except in a few instances. And one of those instances was when the Supreme Court issued its ruling in Rasul v. Bush in June of 2004, and it found that um, that the detainees had a right to a hearing, specifically habeas rights to challenge their detention. And so it was that moment, that was a major turning point. And just to put a little context in that, two months earlier, the Abu Ghraib photos had become public on on April 28, 2004. And those photos of horrific U.S. soldiers torturing um, uh, Iraqi prisoners in the Abu Ghraib prison created a scandal of global proportion, but it also was the first clear revelation that the U.S. was routinely um, engaging in the abuse of prisoners. And so it was, the, and then shortly after that, some of these crazy memos that these radical right-wing lawyers around Cheney, particularly John Yoo had written rationalizing uh, torture as somehow in keeping with U.S. law became public in early June. And so it was the confluence of the fact that the U.S. government was engaged in torture and that government lawyers had legalized torture. When the Rasul decision came down, it was like that's where I sort of argue that that's when the war on court takes off, because that's when first dozens and then hundreds of lawyers, corporate lawyers, family lawyers, human rights lawyers, uh, you know, lawyers from every walk of the profession, Uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats started volunteering to represent Guantanamo detainees as habeas counsel. And so that, you know, begins the process where lawyers, the first habeas counsel, Gita, um, Gutierrez got to Guantanamo on August 31st, 2004, and then after her came many others. So the, the Bush administration wasn't able to keep lawyers out. But in order to keep them silent, they were compelled to sign a protective order that on, on penalty of you know, law would um, bar them from revealing anything that their clients said to them, including about their own torture or inhumane treatment. And the lawyers couldn't tell their clients what the allegation, what allegations the government had against them to justify their continued attention because that information was classified. So lawyers, you know, and we're talking at, you know, when the, at its peak, it was probably between five and 600 lawyers and 100 law firms involved in this habeas litigation. They were the unwilling keepers of the government's secrets. And because the government had a control, you know, had a control, you know, through the enforcement of secrecy, could control the narrative, you know, all kinds of, you know, lies and propaganda uh, about, you know, what was actually happening were going on. So that that was one major thing. Just to sort of finish out the habeas issue, the, um, you know, after Rasul, republican senator lindsey graham introduced the following year introduced legislation to strip federal courts of habeas um of habeas jurisdiction and that act passed you know court stripping so in other words graham wanted to push courts back out of uh these issues that was very much in keeping with with what cheney and the war council went uh wanted but the next case, and then now we come to the military commission issue. Um, so if I can back up, like one of the um, the military defense lawyers in the first cohort, his client was, his name was um, Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift, and his client was a Yemeni named Salim Hamdan. And so Swift teams up with Georgetown University law professor Neil Katyal, and they decide to fight the Pentagon over the legality of the military commissions. And so they fought, Swift files Hamdan v. Rumsfeld um, in uh, in 2004, I believe. And then, in fact, um, Swift and Hamdan win, you know, the first round, the the D.C., um, District court finds that Hamdan cannot be prosecuted in these tribunals until he's been his status has been determined by uh, a normal uh, tribunal. Anyway, the the Bush administration appeals in the appeals court. They overturn that decision and basically that three judge panel on the dc district court one of the three was john roberts who the following year becomes chief is appointed chief justice they basically you know um overturned that thing said courts have no jurisdiction and accused terrorists have no rights whatsoever so kind of validating um you know the the vision of cheney and the war council swift appeals uh, Hamdan v. Rumsfeld to the Supreme Court, which accepts the case. And that was, you know, that that case, that ruling, which came out in um, June of 2006. The way in which I would describe it is the the Supreme Court ruling in Hamdan killed the torture program, but it was denied a proper burial. So the Supreme Court basically said that, um, you know, the military commissions that George Bush had decreed into existence in his November, 2001 order were unconstitutional. So the military commissions were canceled. But more importantly, at least in terms of the abuse of prisoners, they found that common article three of the Geneva Conventions applies to everyone in U.S. custody. And so that finding forced the Bush administration to shut down the CIA black sites. And it's in the first uh, 14 uh people who'd been held, disappeared and tortured for years in in CIA custody were transferred to Guantanamo in September of 2006, including, you know, uh, the alleged mastermind of 9-11, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, whom the government refers to as KSM. And so, but, you know, Republicans controlled Congress in 2006. So in October of 2006, Congress passed the military commission act which basically gave back to the administration that which the um the supreme court had taken away they recreated the military commissions they gave statutory credence to all the invented war crimes that were concocted in order to prosecute non-soldiers for violations of the laws of war and um they uh you know it, it, the, Mil- the Military Commission Act or the MCA also had an element in which it granted ex post facto immunity for any U.S. official or agent of the state for war crimes. So the Military Commission Act really mm-hmm. completely validated um, the kind of vision that Cheney and the War Council had conceived in the earliest days after 9-11. So it's at that point then that Military uh, Commission trials like start kicking up again.
0: Now, one of the things which is really interesting is that one of the main fronts, it seems to me, that the lawyers are fighting on is just over secrecy and the access to information itself. I mean, when the habeas uh, things begin, they can't even get the names of the people who are being detained. Um, And uh, when the military lawyers or the JAGs are trying to defend their clients, Or what's happened to them, they don't even know what military what the regulations are governing what the interrogators are allowed to do. Talk about this a little bit more the role that all of this plays in just in discovery and in terms of like, as you said, you can't even like what happens inside the, the, the prisoners heads is classified. It's really quite extraordinary.
1: Right. Well, so there's two, um, you know, there's a just as the military and the CIA ran their own separate interrogation programs, once CIA um, prisoners are trans, 14 are transferred to Guantanamo in 2006, because the CIA's torture program, which basically, as I said, it sort of died but wasn't buried, remain nevertheless top secret, those 14 people, you know, they're the so-called high-value detainees. Their own memories of what the CIA did to them were classified, and so for the for the the 9/11 case, which involved five Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four others who were accused of playing various roles in 9/11, that case, you know, was um, first brought by Bush the Bush administration, but it fell apart, you know, like it collapsed in the military commissions. And then um, Obama wanted, the Obama administration wanted to try them in New York, you know, right-wing hysteria, shut that idea down. So then they were rearranged in um, 2011. 2011, it's now 2022. That case has not moved beyond the pretrial phase for over a decade. Why? Because you know, the government is trying to prosecute people and one administration after another was trying to prosecute people, you know, and, and portend that it was a, you know, a fair and judicious process. And yet the the conditions of um, the defendant's uh, confinement for years is a classified secret and what was done to them and no one could access them except their own lawyers um, who have to have top secret clearance. And so you had in the 9-11 case and another case involving Uh, One defendant, Abdul Rashim al-Nashiri, who was accused of uh, being the mastermind of the bombing of the USS Cole off the coast of Aden in 2000, who'd also been tortured by the CIA. These two death penalty cases were basically where the fight over the truth about torture was waged, you know, really from 2011 until the present. But the other, you know, people who were prosecuted during the Bush and Obama administrations in the military commissions who'd been tortured by soldiers, it was a different kind of secrecy. So, you know, soldiers are different, you know, like once it became clear that there was a military torture policy, the mili- and the exposure and the critiques, even, you know, Senator John McCain led mm-hmm. the campaign to like clean up the military's house, you know, for that. So the military sort of got out of its um- torture, you know, the active torture through interrogation business. But you do have a lot, I mean, there was, so there's much less secrecy in military commission cases, I mean, relatively speaking, than there are in the cases involving the C, the former CIA detainees. But you still see, so for example, the, the the detainee who, what we would sort of characterize as detainee zero for Gu- the Guantanamo torture program was a Saudi named Mohammed al Katani, And he was transferred When he was captured in Afghanistan, he was transferred directly to Guantanamo in 2002. And then the government, the FBI, started speculating that this guy, Mohammed al khatani might have been the missing 20th hijacker. And so once and so therefore he would be implicated in 9/11. And so this suspicion motivated Rumsfeld to authorize the use of um, interrogation tactics that the White House had approved for the CIA at Guantanamo for al Qatani, and then they very quickly became, um, you know, standard operating procedure. So that was like the kind of military torture program at Guantanamo that then gets kind of cleaned up in 2005-2006 as a result largely of the work John McCain did to pass legislation and revise the army field manual. Um, But one thing I would say, Qatani was charged into, like the Bush administration in the 9-11 case, when they first brought charges against the five former CIA prisoners and Mohammed al khatani the convening authority of the commission, Susan Crawford, had to dismiss the charges against al-Qahtani because he was tortured by soldiers rather than secret agents. And when she told Bob Woodward in 2009, we tortured al khatani She was the first and last Bush administration official to acknowledge torture Mm -hmm. at Guantanamo. And so so although the active torture interrogations stopped, there's still what we see vis a vis the narrative or what Americans public understanding is there is no common narrative. There is no shared understanding about torture. It's inefficacy or whatever. And so we are in 2022, we are still living in a world where there are widely and wildly divergent um, understandings of what happened and what the meaning of what happened was in terms of torture.
0: On on that and on the secrecy question, I I was just, I guess I knew this before, but it was quite stunning. The the Senate Select uh, Committee on Intelligence report, which actually investigated all of this. And then they kept the vast majority of it classified, and then they uh-huh. took all the copies back and tried to destroy them all.
1: Right. Yeah, this is, I mean, that's something that really evinces how partisan this issue has begun. And let me just say that according to um, public opinion polls between 2015 and 2017, when they ask Americans, you know, what do you think about torture? It's kind of split between those who oppose it and those who support it. But 70% of Republicans support torture. So the Republican Party is the pro torture party, clearly, although that doesn't mean that you can explain everything through partisanship alone. But yes, yeah, so the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence was authorized right after Obama took office in 2009, they undertook a massive study of the CIA's RDI program in order to basically say what happened and did what they, the CIA did work and so when the report was um you know done all the you know there was a lot, lot of fighting and and in fact um the cia actually spied on senate staffers that's the subject of the movie the report mm-hmm. you know starring adam driver um so they once the when the report was released the only thing that ever came out in um 2014 of the 6000 um 300-page report was a 525-page, heavily redacted executive summary. That's all that ever came out in public. But even then, you know, that was 2014. It was an election year, and um, the report came out in December. In January, Republicans had taken control of the Senate, and so the new head of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence ordered all of the copies of that report that had been distributed to other government agencies to be returned to the Senate with the intention of destroying it. And today, to my knowledge, only two copies of the entire report still exist. One of them is locked in a a safe in the Pentagon on the order of one of the past judges in the 9-11 case, although the defense lawyers have never gotten the right to see the report. And the other one was put, Obama put it into the president his presidential archive but you know we would be typically obama-esque way he basically said that it cannot be accessed for the longest time available um by law like you know permittable by law and so the truth about torture is both secret and controversial and disputable so it's like we we yeah. there's no way to come to terms with what this you know with all of this um, stuff means, and we're not, you know, we're not done with with this. Right, right. You know, we're we're still living in the war on terror as long as uh, Guantanamo remains open and people remain uh, there.
0: So you describe this in partisan terms, but a big part of your book is that Obama comes into office, pledging to close Guantanamo, and then it just doesn't happen, and these military tribunals are re recreated, and the story just continues.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I would say like Obama had, you know, excellent rhetoric. I mean, the guy can talk, you know, uh, and, and he said all the right things and he probably had all the right aspirations when he started. But Obama made, you know, several egregious Errors, in my opinion, he made Rahm Emanuel his chief of staff. He made um, the CIA's um, deputy uh, um, John Brennan the White House counterterrorism advisor, and those two basically. Brennan wanted to make sure the CIA, nothing happened that would make the CIA look bad. So Obama kind of sides with the secrecy stuff. And Rahm Emanuel basically said Obama shouldn't do anything vis-a-vis Guantanamo or habeas or whatever that Lindsey Graham doesn't support. You know, so basically it was just like that kind of you know, aspirational bipartisanship that basically meant that the hostility and the animus and the contra-legal attitudes that were so steeped in the Bush administration carry over. And Obama, virtually nothing changed, you know, in the period that Obama was in office um, than than the Bush administration. He basically continued the same policies as his predecessor.
0: You start seeing some prisoners beginning to be released, uh, repatriated. Um, and, uh, there's a steady trickle of those as the years go on.
1: Well, in fact, I mean, Bush, you know, I mean, once the the Sewell case had, you know, uh, given lawyers access to Guantanamo, you know, there was then a motivation to start repatriating those who were not, you know, still important to the intelligence gathering mission. And by the time Bush left office, of the 780 total people who'd ever been detained at Guantanamo, 534 had been released during um, the, by the end of the Bush administration. By the end of the Obama administration, an additional hundred and, um, 44 had been released so when trump took office there were 41 detainees the only person that trump let out was somebody named ahmed al darbi who'd pled guilty to um in in 2014 and the trump administration repatriated him to saudi Arabia in 2008 18 to serve out the rest of his sentence, but Trump kept the whole thing, um, you know, on lockdown, including people, there were five people that the Obama administration had been cleared for release during Obama's time that didn't get out before Obama's term ended. They were stuck. So when Biden came to office, there were 40 detainees. And so far, I think four, no, five have been uh, permitted to leave. Three of the five who were cleared by Obama, the oldest detainee who was 75 when he was repatriated um, a few months ago, and Mohammed Al-Qahtani. Who was finally sent back to Saudi Arabia for treatment for the severe mental illness that he suffers? You know, but so far that's it. You know, there's a couple people who've been. You know, there's now about 20 who've been cleared for release. One of the CIA prisoners, Majid Khan, um, had pled guilty in 2012, and his sentence is up. But the Obama administration hasn't released him yet, so he's like serving a post-sentence incarceration. So it's you know. It's like the part of the the bigger story of this, and this is something where I, I think that the book tries to give readers a deep and broad understanding of both what happened and the logics behind different events. But you know, for the, the, what the nation needs, and it seems politically inconceivable, is to really face the truths of this last 20 years and come to an understanding that is based on assessments of reality, to understand that mistakes were made and to take those mistakes to account in a policy that kind of tries to change course. Because so far, we're still riding down the same war on terror course as we've been for 20 years.
0: U.S. has never been good at accountability. Um,
1: Absolutely. So may, let's let one
0: last question then, kind of to redirect this a little bit. I mean, the the book is just packed with courtroom drama and the details of the various challenges and the like. But I want to talk a little bit just at the end here about what you did, uh, where you act. I mean, because you're a character in the book. You, yes. Unlike a traditional academic book, I mean, you're telling your story, and you ended up traveling to Guantanamo multiple times. Tell us a little bit about that, and like what that added to your understanding of the case and to the writing of the book
1: right well you know i because i was um so interested in torture before we knew that the us government was interested in torture uh, or was do, engaged in torture it was kind of like you know i was like the, the where's waldo character you know just and then once things started becoming um, lawyers started getting involved going to Guantanamo and it was fascinating so i at, at, early on the research of this book really spans 20 years or you know 20 cuz i was like looking and waiting and following and then once lawyers start getting involved as habeas counsels and military and civilian defense lawyers and the commissions um you know, interviewing lawyers. And it was fascinating to me. I mean, I used to joke, um, you know, that there were all these like torture novices, you know, whereas like Darius Rajali and I were like the old torture hands, you know, and then everybody else was discovering torture, you know, after love it. But so I was, you know, you can't go to Guantanamo as a scholar. Like I couldn't write a research grant and say, I would like to go to Guantanamo 15, 14 times in order to study the military commissions. The only way I was able to go, and it didn't dawn on me until 2010 was if I go as a journalist. So I'd been very frustrated prior to that because I was like, I could go to the Israeli military courts and see what I was writing about and et cetera. Why couldn't I go to the US uh, military commissions? And then you know a friend of mine who was uh, an expert witness in one of the cases that uh, against somebody an Obama um, administration case, she was like, well, you could go if you go as a journalist. And it was really, that was the revelation. And so I um, I went to Guantanamo for the first time in 2010 as the, Chris Tensing, who was the editor of uh, Merup at the time, basically like wrote out that I was the legal correspondent for Middle East Report. And I've just continued to go as the, as, you know, Merup has been my, uh, my um, media thing, but I've gone, you know, over and over again. And so going to Guantanamo and being there, and I've spent a lot of time, you know, not as much as Carol Rosenberg, who's there every single time there's a commission hearing, but because I could go and I would stay as long as my day job as a professor enabled me to stay, um, you know, being a kind of scholar, but but having the access of a journalist enabled me to really, you know, kind of come to understand the long like to see things as a scholar but but with access only provided as a journalist and so a lot of my journalistic writing you know for the nation for marip or um you know jedalia was really you know i I would just say it was like the wedding of journalistic access and scholarly expertise and so that's what i try to bring you know into the book in terms of telling this story about the hundreds of fascinating and tragic characters you know that are part of this story of the fight against torture
0: well great thanks we've been speaking to lisa hajar about her new book the war in court inside the long fight against torture This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week we're joined by Yazid Sayeg. He's a senior fellow at the Malcolm Kerr Carnegie Middle East Center, a prolific author on a whole range of topics. Uh, Yazid, it's a real pleasure to have you joining us. Uh, thanks for thanks for coming on the program.
2: It's great to do this. It's my first podcast ever, I think.
0: Excellent. So um, I guess to start with um, the the IMF. Uh, and Egypt recently signed a deal which uh, seemed to surprise some people. It seemed to actually take on uh, the question of the Egyptian military's role in the economy. You're the author of uh, probably the most authoritative report on Egypt's military and the economy, uh, the Owners of the Republic report. And in your writings, you were somewhat optimistic about this. So tell us a little bit about what happened and how you understand what's going on right now.
2: I don't believe I was optimistic. Uh, What what I said was that the framework that the IMF and the government of Egypt have agreed for the latest loan on paper could be pretty fantastic. Um, One of the most important things that the government of Egypt has committed to is to bring all state agencies. These are what they call public companies, public business sector companies, general economic authorities. And, and this is the remarkable thing, all military companies and agencies under the same legal and regulatory framework, uh, so that the military are no longer distinguished from their civilian counterparts uh, among government agencies that it is, and that the whole of all government or state agencies, companies, and so on that are active economically, have to not only operate according to one single framework of laws, regulations, governing, procurement, auditing, financial reporting, and so on, but that all this must level the playing field with the Egyptian private sector. Now, if that were to be implemented, that would be revolutionary. It would go against the entire mode of functioning of the Egyptian political economy since at least the nationalization of 1961 and onwards. And therefore it would be the single most important transformation of how the Egyptian economy functions and performs uh, since Nasser nationalized the economy. So it, you know, this on paper has this tremendous promise. Uh, the, the, the problem is that it's almost entirely make-believe. Um, I doubt that the government of Egypt um, takes it seriously. Um, they completely lack the political clout to see this through, not only enforcing the military to subject themselves to the same laws and regulations as their very, very civilian counterparts, but the government is unable to make even state-owned companies, civilian companies and authorities, um Uh, comply completely with you know existing frameworks so the idea that they can bring all this about somehow um, is pure sort of it's miraculous it's magical thinking Um, the fact is that the memorandum in which they made all these commitments which is a very interesting document very slick clearly written by consultants I would say foreign consultants maybe by the IMF itself just to help the government out and say, okay, we you know, we all need a text that makes you look good and that makes us look good. And we're gonna write it for you, you just sign off. Um, so there's this, this amazing document, but I don't think it's gonna change anything at all. Um, it'll be interesting, maybe even fun. Uh, I say that cynically, of course, to observe just how they all wriggle out of this. And how you know the government prevaricates, and how the IMF tolerates and turns a blind eye yet again, despite a lot of signalling and talk about the IMF getting really fed up with the Egyptians about you know past non-performance of various commitments, um, and and that is in fairness to the IMF, they have given Egypt the absolute minimum. And simply promised that by offering them a new loan of only only $3 billion, that this would unlock $14 billion in additional credit to Egypt from other international sources. Um, But that's, the Egyptians were hoping to get pretty much all of that money just from the IMF, and they've not got it. So there is, I mean, this is significant, but it's fascinating to, to read through the documents.
0: The scale and scope of Egypt's economic crisis right now, uh, between the inflation, the collapsing currency, um, is that enough to force the government to try and implement any of these agreements?
2: These, the scale and depth of the crisis are immense, maybe unprecedented. I, I, I hesitate to say that because there are no doubt very important past uh, periods when, which were maybe in their own way as or more threatening to Egypt's political, economic and social welfare and stability. But uh, what I think can be said now is that, (coughs) sorry, what can be said now is that the current crisis is um, entirely due to the economic policies and the investment strategy Developed by President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi since he came to power uh, in 2013, 2014. So basically, it's an indictment of his entire economic approach. Um, and I think uh, we should hopefully get into a discussion of what he'll do next about this, but. In terms of the crisis right now, um, clearly we've seen over at least the past four or so years, even before the pandemic, maybe a little bit more, maybe five years, we've seen (coughs) a significant net increase in poverty in Egypt. And one of the reasons for this is not simply that the poor are getting poorer, it's that what passes as the middle class is specifically these 6 million or so people employed in the state sector, in the civilian apparatus of the state, plus in military and so on, have seen significant declines in their wages, at least in their purchasing power. And CC uh, has pursued policies that have squeezed the public sector wage bill's share of the gross of the economy, of GDP, of the gross domestic product to historic lows. And this has pushed a significant Uh, group of people into either poverty or at least into what the World Bank calls vulnerability. And we're talking about 60-70% to of the entire population here overall. About 30-32% or so of whom are below the poverty line. And that's if the poverty line is measured at $2 a day. If you take the measure of $5 a day, which is more realistic, then of course the percentages shoot up massively. So um, this is a very severe crisis and what happens next in Egypt is you know, going to be very tough, very difficult. But to go back to your question, the, in a way, the question is wrong. I mean, the question of what can the government of Egypt do? The government of Egypt is powerless. They don't set economic policy, Sisi does. I mean, there's, Sisi meets with business people and signs contracts for, you know, an electricity plant, for a rail link, for, this is someone who micromanages the entire economy without really understanding what an economy is. He thinks an economy is basically the sum of as many projects as you can possibly launch. And that therefore, the more projects, then presumably the bigger the economy. He doesn't understand that economies are organic things, social things, things that operate in very different ways. So um he, he's running all over the place, endlessly launching, inaugurating, and signing off on new investments and new projects. Um, the government sits by haplessly. I mean, there is not a minister in government, this government, the preceding government, or the next government, who have any genuine autonomy or authority, not because they're incompetent. There are many hugely competent people within you know this system, within this administration regardless of whether I agree with their economic, political thinking or not, but that's a different matter. The point is there's immense talent there, but the president sidelines it. So the government has no means in its hands to change. The president would have to change, but even he, while being the single most powerful person in the country, um, must also contend with the powerful Members of his governing coalition, starting with the military, going through the interior ministry and the police and security services, uh, also the semi-independent general intelligence service, which reports directly to him, senior judges, senior state managers in, you know, state companies or in other key agencies. These are all part of his coalition. Um, And he has to keep them pretty while you know, using them. So all powerful he may be, but he also may has to make sure that these various coalition partners are complying, are, 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 are not standing in the way of his policies, and hopefully we'll get into some discussion of some examples of how they stand in the way of some of his most cherished pet projects.
0: But it so seems, it's, like, really, it's, it's about this logic. The ninety percent uh, can live in poverty as long as this ten percent uh, remains happy.
2: Now he would, I'm sure, never put it that way. But um, he's quite a remarkable person. I mean, fantastic to, or fascinating rather to to observe and to try and understand. Um, not you know, not because I don't disagree with pretty much everything he stands for and does. But um, it's quite astonishing what he has done in eight years in Egypt, not because it's all for the good, but simply because he's someone who is actually nonstop, you know, working away at stuff, which means sadly that if he's got the wrong ideas in his head, he does a lot more damage than other people could do. He's increased Mm -hmm. Egypt's overall debt by 400% in eight years. And that's quite an achievement um to the point where you you know everyone now recognizes that egypt cannot go on this way and his own best allies including those in the gulf are it's increasingly evident from private and public sources that they're uneasy about his economic policy and in private some will say that uh, they think he's misused the financial lifeline they threw him over the past eight or nine years
0: so CC has taken on such a dominant role. And one of the things which is uh, very clear from uh, the report that you did last year, the owners of the republic, is just how different the Egyptian military's economic role has been since CC took power. This is not the same military from the Nasser years or the Sadat, even Mubarak years. Tell us a little bit about that and how its role has expanded and what this means for this current economic crisis.
2: That's a fascinating question, not an easy one to tackle. Um, And I've struggled a lot with it myself, Um, partly because this is a beast that keeps changing. It's evolving constantly. It's quite fascinating, again, to, to observe and to try. I mean, I have to run all the time to catch up and try and work out what certain things mean that are different are they really different and how different than what i observed two months ago um first off the egyptian military has always had some role in public management of economic goods or projects since the mid 1950s under nasser um however i'm having said that i disagree strongly with a lot of uh, analysis in the past that has regarded the Egyptian military as always having what is called or what they call an economic empire. I don't think that was true at all until the last decade, what I would call an actual empire. They had an enclave pri- prior, prior to 2011 under Mubarak. Um, they didn't really have what I would call a, a separate or autonomous enclave under Nasser or even under Sadat. Um, they were given sort of, uh, economic interests and assets, and certain controls in certain select areas like land control, uh, but that were that could be sort of hived off, so that they would stay out of politics. They'd be happy on their own. They'd get certain goodies, um, but that should be sufficient. They should be satisfied with whatever you know their their own particular little feudal plot, their own fiefdom, mm-hmm. and. Of course, that became in itself something that they saw as their right, their entitlement. And that came in the 1990s specifically to include the expectation of senior officers that on retiring and in return for loyalty, they would be given sinecures, i.e. jobs in the state sector, in the civilian sector, either in state companies as directors, chairman of the board, members of the board, and so on, or at least in what are known as general economic authorities where they'd have certain you know control over uh, assigning contracts and other assets Um, these jobs would then give them civilian sector salaries even private sector level salaries and bonuses and so on that they could award themselves because in the context of egypt's privatization after 1991 public sector companies were allowed to apply private sector pay scales and rules and to govern themselves to a large degree, which meant that these retired generals sitting on top of companies had a lot more freedom to give themselves whatever they wanted and to hire their buddies as consultants or advisors or members of the board and so on. So my point is that all of this was, of course, significant. Uh, it was a loyalty scheme run by Mubarak. However, in terms of the total amount of of the economy and by me that I mean the production of goods and services or what is known as gdp or of ownership or of the share let's say of net profits however you want to measure it the scale was minuscule compared to the rest of the economy which of course was growing quite rapidly at that time and so there's been a lot of i think way you know very very lazy commentary about the military owning and 25% or 40% of the economy without anyone really defining, are you talking ownership of assets? Are you talking share of production of goods and services? What actually are you talking about and who's done the homework? And I discovered that nobody had actually done the homework. So I went and did it and produced the big report you're referring to, which came out just over three years ago. And... So coming back to your starting question, um, the Egyptian military, while having important advantages, exemptions from tax and customs duty, favorable exchange rates on uh, foreign currency and all the rest of it, none of this added up to what you might call an empire to a significant uh, impact even on the private sector in Egypt. And even though um, one reason that they finally moved against Husni Mubarak in two, 2011, was partly because he was grooming his son to come to to become president after him. And it wasn't so much that they objected to Jamal Mubarak's neoliberal market policies and the impact on social stability or social peace and the poor and so on, as they've tried to put out, put about. But rather it was that he was going to come with a whole coterie of crony businessmen and they would represent the new political elite of Egypt. And the military would then definitely be a junior partner. Mm. So I think that, that that explains why they moved against him, and not because he really, genuinely, directly threatened, you know, uh, their economic interest. Since 2013, however, when they took power and then brought Sisi to office a few months later, Sisi, partly because he's a military man, and for various other reasons, he realizes that the Egyptian civilian bureaucracy is is basically non-functioning and so on. Um, he wanted someone who's politically reliable, but also could, in fairness, deliver projects more or less on time to cost, et cetera. Now, it's because he has used the military to spearhead at the same, so so I'll, I'll go back a tiny bit there to the beginning of the sentence, um, because Sisi launched this enormous sort of tidal wave of mega projects, costing tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars over the last nine years. The new, the new administrative because,
0: capital, the...
2: Well, we started off first thing with um, digging a second uh, tra- transit canal, right. the Suez Canal, uh, based on assumptions about the growth of global trade which were entirely wrong, known already to be wrong, but he wanted to have some sort of big, flashy project to show the world that Egypt was there for business, that he was serious about business, and to look good to his domestic audiences. And he launched this $8 billion project, digging basically a hole in the sand on the assumption that by this year, Egypt would be making $13 billion in net revenue from the Suez Canal, Whereas it's simply made six and a half billion or thereabouts, Mm -hmm. which is pennies above what it was already making when he launched the plan, um, you know, seven or eight years ago. And this is the hallmark of his entire presidency. He's said time and again, I don't believe in feasibility studies. If if we did the feasibility studies, we wouldn't have done 25% of what we've done. And he's right, you know, because his, <laughs> the studies would have shown the foolishness of it. So he's sunk Egypt in massive debt. He's basically sunk all this in the sand because he's been digging holes, building real estate, luxury upscale mm-hmm. cities, smart cities they're called because they're supposedly, you know, envir- sort of digitally managed and environmentally this and that. And the new administrative capital, which on latest count will cost like $56, 59000000000 billion. And that's just where we are now with first phase. And it still doesn't have anyone living in it or you know, more than a few thousand or a few hundred even. So he's taken on a massive gamble. And uh, the military have been, of course, an obedient tool in all this, but also a, a partner which was happy to rake in its share of the income because the way the military work in all this, and this is partly what I was trying to establish in my big report, is they don't have a fixed management fee. The government basically says, all right, we're gonna invest $10 billion in building housing. And they then give the military the contract. And much of what has been given to the military has been given on what is known in Egypt as direct award, i.e. non-competitive, no-bid contracting which the military has also been given the power to do. So when the military then, the military doesn't actually build all this. The military then subcontract all the work to private sector companies and they take their cut. Now, that's what I was trying to say, which is there is no fixed management fee of say 5% or 10 or whatever percent. So we could maybe know how much the military is making based on knowing what the budget, the government budget for that project is. What actually happens is the military negotiate with the subcontractor saying, you know, you've got $8 billion to deliver these X thousand housing units. And in fact, what they usually do is they go to multiple private sector companies and say, you get 10 buildings, you get two buildings, you get 15 buildings, you get 500 buildings, depending on the scale and size of the company. And in each case, they say, you're getting, you know, 8 billion, let's say, or 800 or whatever which you and i know is actually 80% of the budget they've been given they determine what their profit margin is going to be and it can go reportedly anywhere from 5 to 30% but it's not a fixed fee they just that's what they take what's critical here is is also is that um the private sector companies that take on these contracts often can barely make a profit or actually at all. In fact, they might even be making a loss in accepting the contract. But they know that if they don't accept this contract at a loss, they won't be given any future contracts. Right. So they accept them. And if then things happen, like the pound, the Egyptian pound is devalued, and these people then have to import certain critical goods, materials, whatever, for the project, which have to be bought from outside using dollars, and suddenly the dollars are going to cost them 20% extra or whatever tough luck right they have to incur the loss so this is the, the military of course for all you know i mean it's it's raking billions in this way i've tried to assess roughly how much based on government figures military figures and using the upper and lower margins of the pro- profit margin that they i know they use um but but finally You know, we've gone from what I think of as primitive accumulation, where they use the, you know, the physical control of land and machinery and so on to make, uh, to to extract from the state this extra income, because basically they're milking the state. Right. Um, They've moved into where now they play a more conscious role where they've increased, they're they're taking a value-added approach, which increased the value of what they get i.e. they tried to get into the ICT sector, information communications technology, to IT, to the fourth generation technologies, to by sitting, they'd now chair the 4IR uh, program in Egypt, for instance, which designs how to capitalize on this you know, high value added approach to, 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 the, to the economy worldwide. They sit on the investment development authority. They, so they now take part in setting policy which they're a part of and a beneficiary of they now produce cement and steel which they didn't 10 years ago on a huge scale we're talking 20 to 24 or 5 percent of the entire cement or steel sectors which used to be 99 percent private sector held they now account for so much of it that they both are the main buyer of the goods because they run all these construction activities and the they're, they're on, they sell, and they're the bigger seller and buyer in the market, which means they're both monopolistic and monopsonistic. So it's an extraordinary situation, which transforms their role from simply being, you know, a hewer of whatever wood, and,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Or, and you know, they, they don't, don't, don't just push bricks around and stuff. They, they actually now do things that are on a higher scale.
0: And when, once you've gone that far down the road... Uh simply saying, okay, get the military out of the private sector doesn't really make much sense. Well, it's, it's a little harder than that. You, me and you and whose army? I mean right. who's gonna, gonna shift them? Well, so that, that actually and brings was, me to my, to my next question, exactly that. So when you began, um, you know, you mentioned that uh, the the current um you know political coalition that's supporting all of this includes the militaries you've been describing but you also mentioned the police the judiciary um the intelligence services each of which you see as having some degree of autonomy it sounds like from the military so how does that all hold together when the military's taken on such an active and um and you know kind of controlling place within the economy where where does the rest of CC's Coalition fit in?
2: Right, so the military are basically the people in the economy, and with the exception of the General Intelligence Service, there's no one else or no other institution that plays anything like that role or even attempts to. There have been feeble attempts by the Interior Ministry to set up its own chain of food trucks, uh, sort of retail, and retail stores uh, called Aman, which you know is is tiny and minuscule by comparison um only general intelligence has anything worth mentioning and it's on a tiny scale also compared to the military they mainly um have acquired uh, a very strong position in media and broadcasting and publication and so on uh, scooping up various private channels and newspapers and so on and this has a lot to do with the regime strategy of controlling the public space and discourse and you know controlling uh, nationalist mythology and all the rest of it. That's, mm-hmm. but And they have a few other uh, interests. Historically, they've been very important in gas and oil, and they were part of the Mubarak regimes. They negotiated deals with the Israelis and with others in the past. Um, it's not clear to me that they still hold that alone without the military anymore. Um, but generally, it's the military who have you know, the machinery, the engineers, the all the rest of it, and therefore can claim with some justification to actually know what they're doing when it comes to building roads and bridges and tunnels and all the rest of it, and who have, you know, a massive army of conscripts to help out. And, and I do want to say that although they use conscript labor, for sure, that is really a small part of the picture. Far more important is that they have employed via public private sector companies, the contractors, subcontractors, they employ... They say, and I think it's very plausible, five million people—not in a permanent way, you know—but on and off. Um, this is far more important than the conscripts. So, the way in which the others are kept happy is different. Um, they get to be part of the new emerging sort of state functionary elite, who can afford to move into these new luxury cities, like uh, you know, new Alamein, Jalala. Uh, although, um, quite a few others, uh, the, new, the new administrative capital, and where they'll be given government assistance and subsidies to help them get in, because the government does want people moving in. So they're part of a new elite, along with senior officers, of course, who used to live side by side with, you know, fellow citizens and family members, cousins, whatever, in Mohandisine or Du'i or wherever in the heart of Cairo. And many of the Egyptian I've spoken to who says, you know, my cousin is an army officer, no longer lives here. He's out in X Y in these nice new compounds with you know um, lawns and swimming pools and far away from (laughs) the dirt and grime and the working class and so on. So there's a whole fantasy here,
0: creating real social. There's this whole political and economic distance.
2: Well, exactly. So what's fascinated me, and I haven't had the time and uh, maybe the tools to do the in-depth study. And I'm really hoping that others who are far more competent to do this will do it. sort of people who are doing some fantastic work, for instance, in the Amran Observatory on you know, urban space, other sociologists, um, people like Sakhar Noor who you know, does an agricultural uh, economist, uh, people who actually look at what happens in at village level, at neighborhood level. Um, the, the social aspiration of this new elite, is fascinating. It's familiar from Brazil to Turkey to the USA. People who want to live in gated compounds who don't want to see the poor, don't want to see the dirt. That's what all this is about. Um, finally, Egypt is getting, you know, a 21st century rail network. It's not to help increase the percentage of freight delivered by rail across Egypt, which would be the most economical way of doing it, mm-hmm. but which receives only 1% of investment in infrastructure, most of the investment in transport goes to roads, 98% basically, which means more cars, more pollution, but also more tolls for the military who have the monopoly on inter inter-city highways and tolls and so on, uh, but it's part of this whole conceit of being part of Dubai, being like Saudi Arabia's new you look at, I look just today, I downloaded an image of what has actually been built in the center of the new administrative capital. And it really looks like Dubai or Abu Dhabi. It's, it's, this, it's their dream. This, this is their daydream. Um, and what it does to the rest of Egypt is sort of, well, well, you know, if you're good people, you're, you know, you no longer do bad things like revolutions, Um, we, we will give you. And it's this, you know, sort of um, paternalistic, uh, Charity based approach, um, so the 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 sort of upper middle class conceit and the vanity that lie behind all this are fascinating, horrifying too to me anyway, and and I really really hope that people listening to this will dig into this. It's yeah. you can read it discursively. Uh, I'll, I'll just throw one last thing in here, which is one of the things I'd love to dig my teeth into in like just a small blog post, I guess is the discourse that goes along with this part of that is cc's buzzwords and it could be localizing technology and so every government official and every military officer involved in the economy will justify and frame what they're doing as fulfilling the president's instructions and exhortations to localize technology and when you look at the details of the contract they're signing with some foreign company all they're providing, actually, is facilitating the government paperwork. And it's the, the foreign partner who provides the machinery, the know-how, the assembly, and all the rest. So there's all this bullshit talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but There's another aspect of the discourse, which is the biggest mosque in the world, the biggest cathedral in the world, the tallest iconic tower in Africa, the biggest textile factory in the world, the biggest fish farm in It's always the biggest, the best. And all of this, I mean, I literally today was hunting for a piece of information about some new legislation. And I could, every single article I found in every single Egyptian media outlet that carried it, the article was about new amendments to the finance law. And literally every single article said the government or parliament have approved new amendments And then the next sentence said, these amendments change the law. And that was it. That was the entirety of the article. Wow. But sorry, what what the second sentence said, I mean, sorry, I missed the punchline. What the second sentence said was, all this is done um, in accordance with international best practice and to the highest international standards. That is the phrase, you know, that everything is always to best in, it's this sort of, sort of mixed inferiority complex with pride sort of saying, you know, we know you don't think we're up to it. You look down on us Egyptians, and which is, I mean, there's a lot of justification for that. And of course it is horrible and racist and true of many Westerners who are happy to do business in Egypt, but do look down. Um, And at the same time, this sort of adulation that, you know, if it's foreign and international, it's best. And all we have to do is keep repeating this mantra yeah, and it's 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 quite astonishing how they can't. No official statement will come out on anything—a factory, rail tracks—you you pick it where that phrase isn't thrown in. That's really interesting.
0: Yes, let me ask you one last question. Um, you're you're talking to me from Lebanon, which is going through an economic crisis of its own, and people looking at Egypt's currency collapse right now are drawing some of the obvious comparisons. Egyptians will come back and they'll say Egypt is too big to fail. Um, mm-hmm. And so, what do you think about that? And what is the actual, you know, you know, kind of what is the floor here for what could happen in Egypt? Is it Lebanon style, or is it really too big to fail?
2: <laughs> Lovely question, um, and the answer is yes to both. I mean, uh, uh, it is too big to fail in the sense that. Its foreign partners in the West and in the Gulf, in particular, will do almost anything to avoid Egypt becoming a disaster like, let's say, Syria. Uh, and I'm thinking because of migration. You know, if Syria is scared you know, the whatever out of Europe yeah. seven years ago, then think of what Egypt could do to the Gulf, to you know, Libya, Tunisia. Sudan even, and to Europe, right? Um, And that's the sort of nightmare scenario. So for all these different reasons, but also because uh, there's a big investment in the Gulf in politically in showing that this kind of regime can survive and succeed, and they want it to work. And that is partly why the Gulf are unhappy increasingly, I think, with um, Sisi, because he's failing them. And if he fails them and shows that this model doesn't work, they've got a multiple crisis on their hands because there's a defeat of a political counter model they've been pushing ever since the Arab Spring. But there is also the uh, very direct impacts on stability and economic well being all around them. Um, so, you know, there, the, Egypt is in that sense too big to fail. And for that reason, Egypt has numerous resources and assets in its favor, um, which mean that it will not go the way of Lebanon. I think the comparison, like every comparison, is useful in order to help us see things and think about things, but not to assume the same trajectory and the same outcome. Right. Corruption in Lebanon is horrendous. And it's so pervasive in Egypt it's sort of internalized in the system. It is part of the system of how the political economy works and has worked since at least 1961. Um, In a way, the military do very little that everyone else in Egypt doesn't do as well. You know, it's not as if they're unique. However, corruption in Egypt doesn't function in the way it does in Lebanon. It functions differently. Its impacts are different, etc. So... I'm not saying I'm not you know valorizing anyone. I'm not saying one's good or bad, good, better or worse. Simply that Egypt has multiple resources, including you know a lot of very significant economic assets, natural resources, um, infrastructure, um, and you know an industrial legacy in manufacturing and so on and advances in agriculture. I mean they've got a lot going. Egypt is a country that could be a fantastic success story, and part of what's so, you know, makes me upset and sad is is just how much human potential is being wasted by people who are grasping, brutal, you know, narrow-minded, etc., and have this overweening belief in themselves. It's 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 offensive to the fact that Egyptians are fantastically creative and productive, hardworking, and all the rest. Um, so as are the Lebanese. In each case, you know these elites who've grasped power like leeches, but they do it in such very different ways. And whereas Lebanon can be cold-shouldered by the West and the Gulf with horrible consequences for the people, and in ways that ultimately the elites manage to adapt to and still make money out of, um, in Egypt, the you know the consequences of of crisis are at least as horrendous and more horrendous because the poor in Egypt are way poorer even the poor in Lebanon. But um, Egypt, despite all of this, has resources and assets it can still use, and that will continue to allow it to sort of surf the crisis to some extent. All that said continuing to operate in the same way as before is not a viable option. Unfortunately, I think CC and his partners, and here I'm thinking the military in particular, think they can go on doing the same old thing. Well, not the same old thing, I'll correct myself. They are modifying and adapting. But I feel that their modifications and adaptations actually are to intensify the state role in the economy at a time when they're pretending to open up the economy to private participation, the entire framing of the latest agreement with the IMF and the document that the IMF and the government of Egypt referred to, which is not just the memorandum I discussed earlier, which is part of the agreement, right. but a separate document that they produced last year known as the state ownership document that is written by clearly by different people, Not by the same people, although signed by the same government, which actually contradicts, I think, directly and indirectly, some of the provisions of the memorandum sent to the IMF, which makes no mention of bringing the military companies to heel at all. Mm. This other document, actually, if you read it carefully, and some of the, 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 the terminology it uses is actually all about the state justifying its role in virtually every single sector in the name of so-called quote-unquote strategic concerns, mm. which include, you know, daily 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 needs of citizens of bread and food and electricity and healthcare and education and so on, and a whole range of other things, all of which are now termed and deemed strategic and therefore part of the state's role and responsibility, and that... What is being offered actually to the private sector is not ownership and not even meaningful participation in terms of designing and defining economic and investment priorities, scale, scope, pace. These are all still to be set by the state. The state is simply saying to the private sector, we're giving you the chance to give us your money to finance our projects and to capitalize our companies. I'm not inventing, this is not my reading, this is literally, explicitly in the text. Hmm. So what Sisi is doing is he's reinventing state capitalism of the old style, and I mean, you know, state ownership, state-led economy. I'm not necessarily opposed, I'm not a free marketeer. I'm just saying that what what the West pretends he's saying and doing is directly contradicted by what he's actually doing and, and saying, and that he is simply saying, we are going to relieve the state of the financial burden by bringing in a hell of a lot more private money. And it's not at all evident why a single cent or dime or penny of private money will feed into his projects. Because for the last nine years, the private sector has refused to step up and Mm -hmm. pump money into his projects. He has complained time and time and time again again in public that we've provided the infrastructure we've given you all these opportunities we've got all these projects just come in you are you will be our free partners to make a profit and then he is surprised that they don't come in and he makes the same complaint again and again and again and again and then wonders why there's no private money according to the world bank Egypt's needs for investment in the next, I think it was 15 or 20 years, it's cited in my report, was on the order of 640, dollars to $650 billion. And there's a shortfall of against estimated revenue, which may now be wrong because of so much debt servicing, etc. But even four years ago, the World Bank estimated a shortfall of $230 billion in that same time frame. That was not gonna come from anywhere except the private sector and the private sector is not coughing
0: up. That's grim. Um, But uh, I guess we'll just have to continue watching this unfold. Yazid, thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely fascinating and um, I look forward to speaking with you again.